Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, big important hypothetical question, you guys. If you could be part of any secret police force, real or imagined, that you also would not identify to if someone asked you what police agency you were from, what would it be? I would want to be part of the secret undercover Metro Transit Police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would want to be like a federal postal inspector and then just oh. identify myself as a federal agent and then refuse to say <laughs> what agency. Be like, don't worry about it. The federal government? Just like flash the badge really quickly. I'm with the feds. <laughs> I'm from I, the feds. I will be part of the Black Helicopter Brigade. Yes, very nice. That's I think a thing Steven too. Could team up with Arnold Schwarzenegger to make a sequel to Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. I would too. I would too. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the not so secret police edition. I'm Shane Harris, Fashion Police. Grammar police, that would be a good one for me, too. So wait, Shane, if you're the fashion police, like, what does that entitle you to do as an, like, an undercover secret police fashion guy? (laughs) Detain you, for starters. Full-time unit. (laughs) There's a task force for Ben Wittes. Just toe shoes. (laughs) Not to mention the dog shirts. Oh, my God. I hope you don't mind being shipped off to undisclosed locations. (laughs) collecting over I've got, I've got an unmarked van waiting for you my friend <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness i am here in a toasty remote jungle studio with my good friends ben what is tomorrow coffin with us and susan hennessy hi guys hi it is hot out there y'all it is real hot we have had a heat wave in dc and elsewhere i'm, I'm afraid to even look right now what does it say? Don't, well, only 91, don't, don't actually. Bad. Oh, that's you not bad. bad. Wait, how is it 91 with a real feel of 103? I mean, where, where where are these extra... Is that 12 degrees? Count backwards from 100 by 7. It's it's from the swamp. <laughs> the swamp just radiates extra hot. It feeling. does. It's a swamp is angry right this now. This is actually empirical evidence that Trump has made the swamp in Washington worse. <laughs> Well, it's it's just when, when you drain the swamp, then the heat doesn't like go into the water and, you know, it just stays in the atmosphere. <laughs> That's yeah. Trumpian logic for you. Yeah. The energy, it doesn't, you know, it just, it just, it's got to go someplace. So it goes to the air and the air is hot. Exactly. This will now be a science podcast moving forward. <laughs> See, who needs schools? <laughs> Somehow the water absorbs the heat. I don't know. It's very rainy. I just cool things off because the water energy goes in the ground. It's great. <laughs> it's great. All right. Yeah. Tune your kids in here if they can't go to school. On the podcast this week, federal officers descend on Portland, Oregon. 
uh, and protesters there over the objections of state and local officials. Why did Trump choose this city and what does he hope to gain from his expanding campaign at federal authority, which he is promising to take on the road? And the U.S. hits back at Chinese spies indicting two hackers and shuttering a consulate in Houston. Other notably very hot city. Let us start with Portland, my hometown. Ben, talk to us briefly about the situation on the ground. And let's also start with a uh, a new uh, scoop that you had at Lawfare this week about new uh, guidance that's being issued to DHS regarding authorities to collect intelligence on protesters and specifically those who pose a threat to monuments and statues and memorials. Tell us about that uh, and what's going on on the ground right now. Right. So what's going on on the ground is uh, that a number of uh, federal law enforcement agents from the Department of Homeland Security and maybe elsewhere as well have been deployed to Portland as sort of seconds or adjuncts to the Federal Protective Service who are there to protect federal buildings. And in that capacity, they have been ostensibly protecting federal buildings, but also uh, quite ag- seem to be aggressively patrolling beyond that and have detained a number of protesters under circumstances that seem a little bit beyond or quite a bit beyond uh, merely protecting buildings and their personnel and have done this while not identifying themselves either by name or by agency. And so the result for a lot of people in Portland is the feeling that, you know, federal agents, anonymous federal agents are sort of snatching people off the street. In addition, and this is the story that Steve Laddick and I wrote for Lawfare, uh, the DHS intelligence analysis unit, uh, which is uh, called INDA, has been authorized to collect intelligence on people and groups that they believe to be posing a threat to monuments and statues. And this is a, you know, pretty aggressive understanding of the domestic intelligence function, which is traditionally reserved at DHS anyway, for things that pose a significant threat to homeland security. And the agency has interpreted the president's executive order to protect monuments and and statues, even privately held ones, as now, uh, in light of that executive order, a homeland security priority that warrants intelligence collection. And so uh, it has been a it's a pretty aggressive reading. It came as a surprise to uh, a bunch of people, um, including me. And as of this morning, Adam Schiff, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee in the House, has written to DHS demanding an explanation and under his authority, his uh, entitlement to be kept current on ongoing intelligence operations. And so, I think it's this is likely to be a component of this story that uh, continues to build. It's clearly upset some people, both in the intelligence community and in the intelligence oversight community. 
Yeah, so I think it's really worth sort of focusing in on this FPS component of what's going on um, as we sort of think about the swirling legal questions. Um, and that's understanding what FPS is. So the Federal Protective Service, while acting DHS Director Chad Wolf likes to say is the largest law enforcement organization, that's not really technically true. FPS is the sort of unloved stepchild of DHS. Nobody wants it. With every reorganization, like it gets kicked to some new uh, element, some new department, um, because people actively want to get rid of it. And essentially, it's sort of it's an office within GSA that is mostly about overseeing contractors, right? It's sort of it's a fee funded agency. It's really small. And so it's the kind of place where even if there were really, really expansive reads of legal authorities or overly expansive re- reads of legal authorities, um, it wouldn't have a ton of impact in practice because there's just not a lot of people, there's not a lot of personnel to back it up. And so what we've seen here is essentially the acting DHS director infuse FPS with tons and tons of personnel and then like launch them onto the streets of Portland. And this really brings to mind something that a former NSA colleague said to me sort of in the days after the 2016 election. And I said, you know, are you concerned about like, oh, you know, everyone was, is NSA going to spy on Americans? Like, what's going to happen with NSA? And he said, look, like, I'm not really worried about NSA. He said, I'm worried about like the the random fusion center somewhere that nobody's ever heard of. There's not really like a robust institutional culture. There's probably not even a general counsel's office. Like on on paper, the authorities are all there, but but nobody's really there and nobody really knows what it does. And that's the kind of place where a, a really sort of shrewd actor and maliciously shrewd actor could use the sort of hopscotch of authorities to really, really empower a place to do really bad things with effect- effectively zero institutional constraint sort of using those as shell organizations. And I think we really, really need to think about the role that FPS is intended to play, uh, is understood to play by Congress, and be really sort of concerned and alarmed and suspicious of the idea that this is not an organization that is supposed to be this massive law enforcement branch. It's not staffed for that. It doesn't have the kind of oversight and and lawyering uh, that's necessary to, to do this kind of stuff. And it, it really does look as though it's being used in order to sidestep other law enforcement agencies that do have those institutional constraining apparatuses within them. Um, and so this is the piece that it's it sort of it's the part that just gives me that really, really bad feeling in my stomach that the Trump administration has finally landed on the thing that that former colleague was worried about three years ago, which is understanding just enough of the legal authorities to be able to wreak havoc and still somehow claim it as being a lawfully authorized activity. And I I think that's a reason to be like really alarmed about what's going on. So I I just want to clarify, building off that point, I I think one of the one of the debates that I see emerging among ordinary Americans who are observing what's going on in Portland is a debate about how exceptional this behavior is or isn't. 
And that goes to the fact that it's DHS and CPB that are carrying out these activities. And to the question of whether CPB is doing this under color of its authority to engage in certain activities within 100 miles of the border. And another point that I've heard raised by a number of activists is that, look, this kind of behavior, you know, not displaying your name or insignia and refusing to answer questions and not clarifying whether somebody's under arrest and snatching them off the street, these are things that CPB has been doing to non-American citizens and to immigrants, whether in or out of status, for a long time. And so the only thing that's new here is that it's being done to protesters who are engaged in, in you know, civil liberties protected activity. So I, I wanted to ask Susan and Ben, number one, can you clarify this issue of, you know, CPB's extraordinary authorities within 100 miles of the border? Is that relevant here or not? And then I hope we can get into the question of just how exceptional and just how concerning is this behavior really? So I think the short answer is we don't know precisely what authorities they are claiming to be acting under. And look, we have a long history in the United States of wanting the federal government to be able to go in to states to enforce federal law over the objection of states for good purposes, for civil rights purposes. It's an area in which we should expect the federal government to be extraordinarily specific about what they are doing and why and what authority they are acting pursuant to. And so the the sort of deliberate vagueness around this question, I think, is really problematic. If we actually look at the language being used by uh, acting DHS Secretary Wolf and the head of CBP uh, Morgan, um, they're talking about uh, sort of protection of federal property, uh, federal buildings. And so they appear to be invoking, although not sort of directly, 40 USC 1315, um, which is a, a sort of a different set of authorities and not this sort of 100 mile uh, sort of border area that they might be within. Um, but I think the short answer is we don't know. And and it might also be that they don't know either, right? That they're just kind of out there doing things. I would really commend to listeners a thread uh, by Harvard law professor uh, Andrew Crespo that really breaks down this question of uh, the ability of these officers to detain people and to take them into custody. Um, It's just it's really clear and and, and sort of well communicated for non-lawyers. But essentially what he's saying, he's talking specifically about this video of an individual uh, sort of with his hands up, not engaged in any kind of criminal activity, being taken into a van and sort of taken to a different location. Um, And his point is that is an arrest, right? This is not like, oh, it's a law school hypo where maybe it's an arrest, maybe it's not. If federal officials are physically detaining you and taking you to some taking you to some other location to question you, that is an arrest. And if they are doing so absent probable cause, that is a violation of the Constitution. They are not allowed to do this. And so the fact that we have the DHS secretary like not understanding the absolute basic minimal protections and standards of probable cause and talking about proactive policing 
I think it's a non-custodial arrest. But it's not a non-custodial arrest. It is an arrest. It is a custodial arrest, sort of full stop. And so to be so brazenly, blatantly wrong on the law, uh, I I think it's a good example of why we should not want this to be occurring in the first place. I have a question that is going to be alarmist sounding, but that's on purpose. You know, there is a lot of hand-wringing that goes on. I don't mean to undermine it uh, or downplay it about what happens if Donald Trump just refuses to acknowledge the results of the election and he won't leave. And I think he alluded to that, actually, in, in a way, in his interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. I mean, maybe best is to Ben, but I mean, what is, should people be worried that he is going to use FPS or the CBP or whatever three-letter camouflaged police forces there are running around Portland to basically ensconce himself in the White House and use it as a kind of Praetorian guard? Or is that just absurd and unrealistic? Well, it it should be absurd and unrealistic, but that doesn't mean it actually is. So I, I think there are a few things that would push back against that. One is that the White House compound is secured not by the Federal Protective Service or by CBP, but by the Secret Service, which is uh, a bit more of an elite law enforcement agency with a bit more of a culture uh, than these entities have. And so I do think that's encouraging in that regard. I also think there is a certain automaticity to, I don't want to overstate this, to what happens in the event of a clear election victory uh, that probably makes it hard to do what people are speculating Trump might try to do. That said, I do think there's a kernel of seriousness about that question, or maybe more than a kernel, and it's the following. One, the Department of Homeland Security has shown itself over the past couple of years, really, starting with certain border stuff and now uh, into these areas in particular, to be more amenable than federal law enforcement should be to being the sort of shock troops of the president's agenda, right? And there's a reason why uh, it isn't the FBI out there in Portland, or it isn't the Drug Enforcement Agency or administration, or it isn't the Secret Service, or even really the Marshal Service, right? You go into these non-justice department, non-elite law enforcement agencies that are, by the way, very large. You know, one of the things about CBP is that it's, I, I mean, I, I think it's the biggest law enforcement agency in the country. It's its gigantic. And, you know, it does not have the same kind of institutional culture that some of these other agencies have. And it turns out you could get it to do things that it's hard to get other agencies to do, um, you know, starting with locking kids in cages, right? Um, but also with going out into the streets in in Portland and, you know, apparently disappearing people into vans. And so I I do think the concern, what does the president do with the with these agencies when he's really got his back up to the wall is not an illegitimate one. And I don't, I don't think it 
it comes down to using them to barricade himself in the White House. But I do think there is, you know, reasonable concern about some of the mischief that he could get up to with respect to DHS agencies. And this is particularly true because there is no Senate confirmed leadership at DHS at all in a fashion that is, by the way, quite illegal and unconstitutional. And so you have these people who are all acting, and some of them aren't even lawfully acting. And as uh, you know, the president says, I prefer acting. It gives me more flexibility. And so you have these sort of agencies that don't have a great deal of esprit de corps and sort of institutional culture that militates against abuse led by people who owe everything to the president and who have never been through Senate confirmation. And as Susan rightly points out, who clearly don't know the first thing about the law of, say, what an arrest is. And you say that can really that can really cause some problems. All right. So that's a good transition for the second half of this conversation, which is really we want to talk about the implications of this and really what is driving Trump's decision uh, here. And, and we talked in the first segment, obviously, about I like Susan saying it's almost like they've been banging around and maybe they're finally getting the recipe right uh, for how to do things here. But but the president has been very clear uh, that he wants to campaign on law and order. He is done with the coronavirus, even though he gave which a uncharacteristically coherent, I would say, a briefing, White House briefing on Tuesday on the coronavirus in which he acknowledged it's going to get worse before it gets better. But he clearly wants to pivot onto the conversation about monuments and about culture and the Confederate flag uh, and policing. You know, Tammy, is that how we should be reading Portland, that this is merely sort of like the, the performative part of the rhetorical campaign? And, and, and what do you think also about his threat to deploy these forces to, to other cities? He's also mentioned uh, Chicago. And Detroit. Um, so, look, I, I think that when you look at these behaviors through a political lens, you can say, Yes, obviously, in the context of the populist politics that is Trump's game, this enables him to symbolically stand up for these icons of, you know, of his base, these uh, statues that are being toppled, right? Um, The use of federal law enforcement against protesters who are claimed to be or perceived to be attacking these symbolic statues and buildings and so on allows him to define protesters as the enemy and thereby to delegitimate what it is they're protesting for um, or what they're protesting against to, to delegitimize the movement. And that is the way populist politics works is by defining those who dissent from your view, you being the populist leader, as outside the legitimate political community. They're agitators, they're anarchists, they're terrorists, they're criminals, whatever. But what they aren't are citizens expressing their grievances in the streets against their government, which citizens have the right to do. Um, So, yes, politically, that's how it's functioning. It's definitely, you know, set. It's part of the discourse of the campaign. But I actually think that that's a completely insufficient way of looking at what's going on here. 
And one of the reasons why I asked earlier about, you know, is this really so unusual or what, is because I think it's important to understand what has happened in DHS, the authorities that have been granted and that are now being exercised, both the intelligence authorities and the law enforcement arrest authorities, as steps to actually manifest Trump's authoritarian instincts. This is, you know, and this is something that the four of us have talked about on this podcast from the moment Trump was elected, when we discussed which government institutions we were most worried about being corrupted and used as an instrument of personal power. You know, we had a lot of discussion about the Justice Department, but you know, I recall very well a discussion we had last fall after the last general counsel was forced, Senate confirmed general counsel, was ousted from DHS about what was happening there. And I think we have to remember in this context, you know, some of the things that have come out about DHS's rank and file, the really disgusting, violent, misogynistic statements made by DHS officers about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez when she was performing congressional duties uh, overseeing a border facility. So DHS has been politicized for a while. It's been denuded of accountable leadership, as Ben said. And now the president is using it to set up his very own Mukhabarat, secret interior ministry intelligence collection on political dissent, and his very own baltagia, as we would say in the Arab world, his very own thugs who go out in the streets to disrupt protests and intimidate protesters and deter additional protest. And so to me, this really does represent a landmark and we shouldn't simply see it as uh, the way DHS has always been toward immigrants, but now we notice it more. I think we need to see it as a different kind of thing, as a signal of a major institution in the federal government acting on behalf of authoritarian impulses by the president, and we need to oppose it as such. And so how do you oppose that? And what's interesting to me is that the protesters in Portland immediately developed an effective response, which is the wall of moms. You know, you oppose authoritarians through civic action, through civil society. I talked about this in June in the context of the George Floyd protests. Wall of moms is a fantastic creative um, civic resistance response to an illegitimate use of force to intimidate protesters. And I, I saw this morning that Wall of Moms um, have now been set up proactively, Mr. DHS, in Detroit and in Chicago. And, uh, and I think, unfortunately, yeah, we're going to have an election in November, but the battle for our democracy is going on in the streets right now. I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. I think the Wall of Moms may be helping protect polling places in November. Uh, Susan? Yeah, so look, I um I agree with that. I tend to think that at its core, Trump is doing this for the pictures, right? He really likes these images coming out of, you know, sort of federal officials in riot gear, uh, you know, pepper spraying uh, protesters. And, and that um, helps feed uh, a, a narrative and a visual narrative that uh, Trump in particular and the right wing media ecosystem more broadly is really invested in. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think sort of the wall of moms is, is so effective um, 
because whenever the receiving end of that is like a gray haired lady, that certainly undercuts sort of the this image of federal power. Um, that said, you know, I, you know, Tammy mentioned that we've been having this uh, sort of conversation and, and really it sort of goes to the core of arguments that Ben and I made in our book about how the president has these inherent presidential authorities and Trump loves the areas in which he has absolute power, the war powers, the pardons, the things that he can do and nobody can stop him and he has the absolute right. Um, and that as he is increasingly under stress, he's more likely to sort of retreat to those areas. Um, and I want to note that that's not the case here at all. So Trump may be attempting to use the same rhetoric of I'm going to protect American cities. Um, there is no inherent constitutional right for the president or the executive branch uh, to have DHS officials in in states, right? They are there pursuant to statutory authorization, very specific statutory authorization, um, essentially at the pleasure and invitation of Congress, uh, who get to set the boundaries. And so this isn't an area in which Trump really is able to like flex lots and lots of muscle and, uh, you know, shoot first and ask questions later and do what he wants and sort of the legal niceties uh, just kind of magically, you know, work around him and then some sort of unitary executive theory uh, heals any number of sort of, you know, breaches of legal niceties. This is an area in which these are federal officers exercising coercive powers. And if they are doing it outside the scope of the statutory authorization, they are breaking the law. An unlawful arrest, I mean, sort of the Portland kidnapping stuff, um, I, I tend to sort of uh, always shy away from like the, the hashtag campaigns, but that's what an unlawful arrest is. And so this is an area in which we should understand that if the federal government steps a toe out of line and is doing something that they are not statutorily authorized to do, then that is the president and the Department of Homeland Security directing violations of the law, directing uh, violations of the U.S. Constitution, and so um, I, I do think it's important to like to, to to think about these as really, really distinct phenomenon. Uh, sort of the areas in which pr Trump, uh, however abusively he wields them, can claim some sort of core presidential power and authority. And, and what we're seeing here, because they are out on the razor's edge of legality here, and appear to have no freaking idea what they're doing. And, you know, and, and politically, it, it seems strikes me that it doesn't even make sense. And it's just it's so counterproductive for him. Mean, I get, you know, the idea to, you know, law and order and play to the base. And, you know, I'm not really aware of any controversial statue Confederate monuments in Portland that need protecting. But, you know, to the point of this wall of moms, I mean, where is the one place that the president has been absolutely cratering on support that he needs to keep? It's suburban women. And really, you want pictures of police tear gassing moms like wearing the shirts that say mom is here uh it just strikes me as a colossally you know foolish uh move but we don't talk politics that much on this show but i i kind of can't believe that they're actually playing for those optics now or inviting them um but ben just in the last few minutes we have in the segment i want to ask you and this this gets really to some some legal questions as well but maybe political ones what can 
you know, Oregon officials and Portland officials, practically speaking, actually to to tell these federal police to just take a hike and, and to get out of their city? I mean, I understand that part of the rationale for the administration sending federal forces there in the first place is that they felt that the Portland police and Multnomah County police were unable to contain the situation as they saw it. But is there anything, you know, practically that the governor or the mayor or the county commissioners can do to just say, get out of here? Well, as you've stated the question, probably not. Um, So, look, the rule is if there's a legitimate federal interest, a legitimate reason for the federal government to be there, federal law trumps state law to the extent that they conflict, right? That's why in Little Rock during the civil rights era, uh, the feds could, you know, the Eisenhower could send in you know, federal federal troops to integrate public schools, right? The, the rule is if the federal government has a lawful right to be there, its operations are supreme. Now, there are, that does not answer the question, of course, of whether the federal government has a legit basis to be there. And of course, the answer to that question is absolutely they have the authority and in fact the obligation to protect federal buildings and federal personnel. So to the extent they're protecting buildings, there's three federal courthouses and a couple of federal buildings in downtown Portland. So there's some discrete, legit federal interests uh, around those buildings. To the extent they are patrolling the streets more generally and not obviously protecting those buildings, as Susan says, if they're arresting people, that's kind of kidnapping, you know? And and so I think it really does depend precisely what they're doing and what the what the basis on which they're doing it is. So that's the, the technical legal answer, and it's going to be highly fact-dependent. The more general answer is uh, that political pressure matters here, you know, and uh, this is not a legal point. It's a political point. You know, when the wall of, of it wasn't moms in the case of the District of Columbia, it was just large numbers of peaceful protesters came out after the Lafayette Square incident. And those peaceful protests grew every day. And uh, the federal government backed down because the optics of that were simply terrible. And, you know, uh, they kind of declared victory and left. And I do think, you know, the political leadership of the Oregon government in combination with the protesters, in combination with Oregon senators and congressional delegation can be hugely powerful here, but probably not for legal reasons. It's more for political and optical reasons. All right. Well, there are also fires burning in Houston, Texas inside the Chinese consulate where they're burning up classified documents in drums. Do you like that? Burn it down, baby. Burn it down. Did you guys know that burned a burn? Let a, it burn. <laughs> Let it burn. Burn down is a term. Susan may know this. It's a, it's an intelligence term of our, a burn down. It's like when you're like, you're gathering all the classified shit and putting it in the furnace and like, you know, burn that's it. what you do when you've got yeah. to get out. 
And if it's an embassy abroad, I believe that the U.S. Marines are uh, assigned with protecting the documents and will tell people that, look, if we are on, uh, you know, the 72 hour or 24 hour or 20 minute order, uh, you know, we are we are here to protect the documents, not necessarily <laughs> the people. That's somebody else's job. <laughs> Paper, not but, people. But the documents get burned and the equipment gets smashed yeah. with hammers. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, U.S. government announced today it is uh, shuttering a Chinese consulate in Houston. Uh, we are reporting at the Post. Uh, our sources are telling us that this facility was essentially a hub for, as U.S. officials saw it, very aggressive intelligence operations by the Chinese that were going over the line. There is this sort of, you know, the unspoken rules of espionage. And the Chinese have really been aggressive, not just with computer hacking in, in recent years, but also sending personnel here who are not really authorized to be here and collecting information, harassing Chinese nationals who are living in the United States. It seems like this facility in Houston may have had a bit of a connection. And then on Tuesday, we also saw uh, two Chinese hackers indicted uh, for a multi-year hacking campaign, which was allegedly benefiting them both personally, but also was working for the Chinese government. So, Susan, to some extent, we've seen these you know, movies before, right? I mean, we've seen indictments of Chinese hackers, certainly. We've seen shutterings of diplomatic facilities, notably out on the eastern shore of Maryland and in San Francisco, Russian diplomatic facilities following their interference in the 2016 election. So why is the Trump administration kind of rolling out all these hits against China now, just in these past few days? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of different plausible explanations um, for why now. I will say that if you look at what FBI Director Ray or the head of NSD John Demers or even Bill Barr when he's not um, busy accusing the FBI of, uh, of spying on Trump, um, they have all been sort of pounding the table about China for a while now, at least sort of the last 18 months, two years. And so there is a part of me that wonders if this isn't a little bit opportunistic, right? There's been a lot of people within the government that have wanted to take really, really strong uh, sort of countermeasures against China for a while. And something about sort of the, the combination of factors um, regarding sort of the current political circumstances that that sort of that allowed them to then care to then sort of do things that they'd long been advocating for. Um, this is a weird choice, though, um, in terms of, you know, presumably the United States government knows a lot of things that uh, a lot about what the Chinese government is doing within the, the U.S. borders. And choosing this particular sort of set of indictments and set of activities as the focal point um, is, is just, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual choice, in part because they're going after individuals who are not formally working for the Chinese government. These appear to be criminals, essentially, that maybe are freelancing for China as well on the side. And that's quite different than, for example, the sanctions and indictments against the GRU hackers, right? Those are people who are actually employed by the Russian government. And so that that adds sort of a layer of complication. And essentially what the DOJ indictment is saying is um, that the Chinese government is sort of is allowing and facilitating this criminal sort of organization and syndicate to flourish. Um, the second part that's a little bit hard to, to sort of uh, parse through as a policy matter is the target 
targeting of vaccine research in particular, to the extent that we assume that's being done on behalf of the Chinese government. So this indictment alleges that the purpose of this espionage is in order to steal this research um, in order to gain an economic competitive advantage. Um, But as we've talked about in the past, um, this is probably a period of time in which um, many intelligence agencies all around the world, both U.S. allies and others, um, are probably heavily targeting um, sort of scientific facilities, um, not necessarily to gain an economic advantage, but to to, to learn about the vaccine and presumably save the lives of of their citizens. Um, And so that's also sort of a a strange choice. So this is just a a weird sort of presentation of facts kind of all lumped together. And then I think uh, heightens the question of why now? Um, One thing I I do wonder is whether or not this is something that it's intended to be messaging, right? This is bringing this as as a DOJ indictment and then pairing it with closing the Houston consulate would be one way of communicating to China or anybody else who might be listening. We seek you and we know exactly what you're doing. And this is a big, splashy way to get those people's attention and tell them to knock it off um, and also sort of to deter further activity. Um, in terms of sort of closing the, the consulate in Houston, it, it's not a crazy thing to do, um, particularly if this facility is actually tied to the activity in question, right? It's not just like a random choice that they pulled out of a hat. That said, as with all things on the Trump administration, you have to ask, what's the long-term plan here? Because China is sure to retaliate, likely by closing a U.S. consulate. And so, Okay, there's sort of there's a nexus here. This facility appeared to have been um, being used for uh, espionage activity that crossed the line. They want to disrupt that. They want to send a message. What's the plan for what's going to happen over the next six weeks or six months? Um, and and that's the piece which uh, it's hardly surprising to say, but it's not really clear what the coherent policy goal is, uh, either from the Department of Justice or the Secretary of state at this point. Yeah, so I think if we saw this combination of policy actions by a U.S. administration over on Earth 2, we wouldn't be surprised at all, exactly as Susan says. You know, a lot of this involves activity that's been going on for a while, but these actions in combination, the DOG indictments and the closure of the consulate, are a way of sending a strong brushback pitch, if you will, to uh, Chinese intelligence and to sort of push them back, disrupt some of their activity and let them know that we're paying really close attention. And and they would then do a tit for tat on U.S. facilities and personnel in China. And we would all sort of go on from there. I think Susan is therefore exactly right to bring up the point of like, OK, what is there a broader policy goal here in the U.S.-China relationship, competition, confrontation, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it. And the fact that the Trump administration really, not only on this issue, but on a host of other foreign policy issues, struggles to articulate clear policy objectives and tends to just do the bullying and the bluster without necessarily tying it to a strategy to achieve specific goals. In the Chinese case, I I think that's particularly hard, quite frankly, because this is a relationship in which the American economy uh, and American institutions, as well as the American government, it's a real double-edged sword. Our economies are deeply entangled. 
our societies have been doing a lot together. Are, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how our universities are increasingly dependent on tuition income from Chinese students, right? And yet they are engaged in activities that we see as crossing the line of normal, competitive international espionage. And for a number of American policymakers and strategists, we're now engaged in a really serious competition with them on stuff that they believe has high stakes for the future, like artificial intelligence and its application to military and intelligence tools or a coronavirus vaccine. And, you know, and so I actually, I have a very hard time criticizing these particular actions. I think especially given the facts that have been reported, you know, there is reason to give the Chinese a strong brushback pitch when we have instances of individual Chinese who apply for student visas and we discover later that they were given instructions by the Chinese military to undertake certain intelligence gathering activity on behalf of the Chinese military. Like, you know, that's something we need to respond to very strongly. But I think, you know, where we all still struggle on the U.S.-China relationship is how do we understand how competitive, how all out is this confrontation right now? Is it possible to get past this and still have a working relationship in other areas or does it just escalate? And I think it's, you know, it's particularly challenging to try and figure that out when you have the blunt instrument of the Trump administration. But I think it would be really challenging anyway. Yeah, I just want to add to that, that, you know, I don't have a problem with this at all. I think as, you know, both both Susan and Tamara have said, you know, this is part of the cat and mouse game of espionage. How much can you get away with from a diplomatic facility before you uh, trigger a reaction from the other side? And how do you leverage your control over and ability to interfere with diplomatic missions uh, from that side in order to calibrate the other side's response? That's all totally legit. And the idea that the Trump administration would be trying to send, you know, a a tough message to China across a range of areas strikes me as, you know, reasonable and appropriate. The problem is that the message that they're actually sending is so wildly inconsistent. And it jumps, you know, from oh, I think it's great what you're doing locking up these Uyghurs to uh, Xi Jinping is my good friend. We've we've had, you know, such good chocolate cake together. We're going to have a trade deal to this stuff almost by the day. And that vacillation, I mean, put yourself in the shoes. I don't mean to sound like I'm pitying the poor Chinese Communist Party, but put yourself in their shoes trying to do business with us. You never know which Trump administration is going to show up any day. Is it going to be the one that's kissing your ass so hard that you have bruises? Or is it going to be the one who's, you know, belligerent and imposing sanctions? Is it going to be the one that imposes sanctions over the way you treat about the Uyghurs? Or is it going to be the one that actively encourages it? And so there, you know, I do think, and I say this not to to suggest that there's a, 
you know, that we should pity the poor CCP, but rather that if you're trying to communicate consistent messages that identify where the red lines are and that set the terms of U.S. policy in the way that other people can reasonably anticipate consequences for crossing it and not playing ball with us, this is not the way to do it. And so I'm delighted that the Houston consulate is shut down. I'm just afraid that tomorrow the president will say, oh, we're going to build them, let have them build a much bigger consulate in suburban Houston, and it's all going to be done with American jobs. Don't put it past them, Ben. You know, it's entirely possible. Leave me, I don't. <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's get past the fun part of the show. Not the front, the front part of the show, and move oh, on to the fun part of the show. It's all fun. You call that a segue? Ah, that was bad. I wish she have Jen cut that out, but no, she'll just keep it. So, whew, it's a butcher of a segue. Jen can't save you, Shane. No, she cannot. No. You're the notorious Shane. Oh, it was bad. It was bad, you guys. But time for object lessons. Um, Tammy, why don't we start with yours? Okay, so. We all just complained about how hot it is. And, you know, it's July, it's Washington, it's all those things that we love to complain about. But there is one thing about July around here that simply cannot be beat. And my object is that thing, wild raspberries. Over the last two weeks, I think I have gathered a total of probably six or seven pints worth of wild raspberries from our little property out in the Shenandoah. And I have raspberries in my freezer. I have given raspberries to my in-laws. I might even uh, be persuaded to give you one or two if you ask nicely, Shane Harris. But I will give a tip for all of you who want to keep your raspberries and bake with your raspberries, but know how delicate they are and how squishy they get when you incorporate them into dough. Mm Mm-hmm. If you freeze them on a single sheet, like on a sheet pan in an individual layer, and then put them in the recipe frozen, they will not get all smushed. Oh, wow. And that's how you can make your raspberry scones, Shane. Oh, so they stay intact so it's not just like raspberry jam. Exactly. Now, I find also that you you must never rinse the raspberries. Only before you eat them do you rinse them because they they will just, they will turn on you in an instant. They're delicate little things. They don't like to be wet. They will explode into little juice bombs all over your sink. Be very moldy. So eat them. Eat them when they're fresh. Don't even. Don't even bake with them. Just eat them all. I, you're showing me a picture of these now, and I. I you know, I think I'm going to need some of these. Um, Susan, what's your object? So my object, and um, we are recording this on the 22nd, and um, just wanted to sort of briefly acknowledge for podcast purposes um, the passing of Representative John Lewis, um, who isn't somebody we talk about sort of a lot in the national security uh, sphere, in part because of the the nature of his committees of jurisdiction, um, you know, but is somebody, I think, spending time reading about uh, his life and his history of advocacy. Um, I, I think it's healthy for the national security community in particular to think about uh, the relationships between 
the law and compliance with the law and uh, what it means when laws are unjust um, and to a reminder to not overly comfort ourselves with legalisms um, in the face of really, really profound wrongness. Um, so, you know, certainly he will be missed. Um, and, you know, just being able to read all of these beautiful tributes um, and uh, and learn even more sort of about the history of the civil rights era um, is I, I would commend, commend many of them a longer list than I can recite here. Um, but just wanted to um, to say that uh, that he will be uh, sorely missed. Indeed. Uh, Ben? So as podcast listeners know, I have a thing for impulse buying incendiary objects. And um, this weekend, I'm afraid I had a little, as as viewers of of In Lieu of Fun know, we had a little baby cannon mishap where uh, we were trying to use the 3D printed baby cannon to destroy a small bottle of Prosecco. The cannon exploded and uh, pieces of it were found a hundred yards away. And the baby Prosecco bottle was just fine, except that a ricochet off of the Prosecco bottle destroyed my computer. Um, And so that was this weekend's. um, That'll teach you for trying to waste good liquor. Instant karma. It was it was a bad karma kind of moment, but undeterred by this, I recently saw uh, an ad in um, one of the catalogs where I buy incendiary objects for brightly colored smoke grenades, and I did I confess uh, impulse order brightly colored smoke grenades which I was informed uh, the other day that eight of them are arriving on Monday. Mm. And so my question to rational security uh, viewers or listeners is what would you do with eight brightly colored smoke grenades? Throw them at protesters. Usually people have a need for brightly colored smoke grenades and then order them rather than order them. That is is missing the psychology with which I do these things, Susan. Um, What colors did you order? Uh, They came as a package. And hang on, I will... I will... A picture of the smoke grenades will, will of course, be on our... On the show page. There will be... uh, Yes. And, um, but if you, but what, let's see, what colors are they? They are blue, green, red, yellow, purple, uh, orange. Yeah. There's like a lot of them and they, they're, they look, they look really beautiful and I'm trying to figure out, well, what do we do with them? Just in time for Euro pride. (laughs) If you have thoughts for what you would do, with uh, brightly colored smoke grenades, uh, tweet them at me. Yeah. Make sure you keep your computer away from him this time. <laughs> uh, my object is <laughs> uh, a new book that I'm reading that I want to share with listeners. Uh, it is absolutely terrific. Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia, 
and then took on the West by Catherine Belton, who is a special correspondent at Reuters uh, and a very admired journalist and watcher of all things Russia. Safe to say that uh, people who follow Russia and in recent Russian history have been eagerly awaiting this book, and it does not disappoint. Uh, she does an incredible job of not just tracing Vladimir Putin's rise, but I think more importantly, the way in which the KGB in the years before the fall of the Soviet Union anticipated that change was in the wind and then basically set out to create a power infrastructure for itself, including a quite vast uh, money laundering uh, apparatus uh, to ensure that it would maintain power. And this is really about how the KGB for a time and, you know, of course, the remnants of it fell out of power and then have come back in. It's, it's just a really sweeping book, you know, beautifully reported. Uh, if you have any interest in Vladimir Putin in the sort of intelligence slash criminal state that is modern Russia, check out Putin's People. You will like it very much uh, by Catherine Belton. I think that's the show, you guys. It's time for some raspberries, don't you think? The kind you eat, not the kind oh, yeah. you blow in my direction, just to be clear. even though It's I've always time for raspberries. Always, always. And we're going to get to it. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com where you can find your Rational Security raspberry-colored smoke grenades. Right, Ben? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> that one you agree with. You're totally down with that. You'd be fine. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook as well. When you do download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps us out and helps others find the show as well. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Chad Wolf and his absolute butchering of the underrated Madonna classic, My Baby's Got a Secret Police Force. Oh, oh yes. yes! Well done. <laughs> he looks like he'd know that song. Yes, he would. He he sings it in the shower. Oh, he knows. And Sophia Yanyos too. She will not be playing along the backbeat of that one, I don't think. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.